0: Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke.
1: And I'm Jay McKenzie.
0: On this episode of Did Nothing Wrong, we are joined by Asha Rangappa. Asha is a senior lecturer at the Yale University Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a former associate dean at Yale Law School. Prior to her current position, Asha served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Asha has been a contributor on numerous television and radio outlets and is now a legal and national security analyst. Her sub stack is called Freedom Academy. We're extremely lucky to have her on the show today. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. Asha, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So Asha, you run a Substack page called the Freedom Academy. I read your About page where you explain the origin for this name, which I found as fascinating as I think you did too. And you wrote that you want to use your platform to, quote, educate and create a community around understanding the threat of disinformation and its impact on democracy. So how does raising public awareness of these issues help us as a nation moving forward
2: yeah my background with propaganda and disinformation comes from my time in the fbi this was soon after 9 11 i joined the fbi i was placed in the counterintelligence division and the cases i worked mainly involved what the fbi calls perception management operations by foreign intelligence services Now, remember in the early 2000s, this is before social media. This is even before, like, the major Internet explosion, right? So this was mainly analog media type of propaganda and disinformation. And it didn't feel like that big of a threat. Like, when I was looking around and especially after 9-11, I'm like, really? Like, this is what we're combating? (laughs) But one thing that, you know... I did learn about those types of operations and how you neutralize them that's the intelligence term to render them ineffective is you expose them that when people know what is you know how they are trying to be cognitively manipulated, they become more resistant and resilient to it. And so raising awareness is really the antidote to disinformation um, because it makes people be more critical of how they're consuming information, what they're consuming, understanding it, thinking about their reactions to it. And I think that's especially important in, in, in an information age where it's just coming at us so fast. I think all of us have been duped by disinformation at one point or another. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just understanding how it works and what the goals are from our adversaries. And sadly, I think many of those tactics have now been adopted by domestic actors. But just to understand them, I think is really critical in terms of preserving our democracy.
1: I don't know if you've looked into this or or studied it yourself, but do we have any examples in the real world of countries, say, post-Soviet you know, the Baltic states, or are there any examples of a success on a on a large scale in a, in a foreign country? Has that has that really happened yet? Or I, I know those those states are more aware of something like Russian disinformation and propaganda, and they kind of learn that by necessity. But is that is that kind of a template for for you and for for us going forward?
2: You mean in terms of combating?
1: Yes, yes.
2: Yeah, I think that you know the countries especially around the former so the former soviet bloc states i think you know they have been on the front lines of this for a while and what we need to understand is that all states engage in this but You know, Russia is sort of the OG, okay, (laughs) of of disinfo and propaganda. This is the KGB. You know, active measures, which goes back to the Cold War. This is sort of where my Substack begins. All countries engage in this, but Russia is really the one to look at for understanding a sophisticated actor in this space. And you know, the the countries around them have learned how to combat it to different degrees, and I think are much better at understanding it. I mean look at, for example, right now in Ukraine, President Zelensky is very savvy about combating Russian narratives in the information space. He completely understands that this is a kinetic war, but it's also a war that's being fought for the hearts and minds of not just Ukrainians, but also the world. Right. And so he's he's been very savvy about that. We in the United States are are really naive. And what Russia has done is they've kind of practiced, they practice on their own people, they practice around, you know, the satellite countries around them, and they've slowly moved westward. And so perfecting their technique each time. And I do think we can look to some of those countries and how they're engaging and reacting as templates.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned Zelensky, and I I feel like part of the reason they dislike him so much is because he's just so good at this. He, he's mm-hmm. kind of surprised everyone to an extent of how well he's handled this war in the information space. But they get frustrated and irritated with him because he knows how to raise money and raise awareness and keep Ukraine in the in the public discussion. And they don't want any of that.
2: Yeah, he's you know, there's some sometimes when you look at history and you you realize there's the perfect person that was there for that moment. And I think he's the perfect person for this moment for Ukraine, because he's not only He not only understands Russia's tactics, he's a performer. Yeah. And so he also understands audiences and how you connect and things like that, that sometimes politicians don't, you know, that not all politicians are necessarily good at that. I think he is perfect for this moment. And I can totally see why Russia would. And he's more he's more sympathetic. He's more I think people do connect with him and see him as a representative of the Ukrainian people.
0: So since we're talking about the Russians being sort of the OGs of all of this type of this type of work, you wrote a recent article about the old Soviet term reflexive control. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how it's being used against us today?
2: Yes. Reflexive control is essentially a Russian psychological warfare tactic. And really, it's about getting your adversary to reach the conclusion that you want, okay? And so what you do is you understand your adversary's thought process. You understand their logical reasoning, and you plant assumptions at key points into their reasoning process. So their decision tree will basically end up where you want it to go, And they believe that they've come to that conclusion all on their own. And Mm -hmm. you really haven't had to do much for it. Right. This is a very effective way of battling an adversary because it doesn't require guns and bombs. Your adversary may not even know that you're doing it. They don't know that they're manipulated to get to the outcome that um, you want. It's a great tool, especially for weaker states that don't have the hard power that we do. And Russia is very good at this. They are incredibly good students of their targets. I mean, they really take the time to understand, you know, the populations that they're targeting. And they understand that what they need to do in Ukraine is going to be different than what they need to do in Poland. And that's going to be different than what they need to do in France and the U.S. because they really take the time to understand what is it that drives these people what makes them tick how do they think you know these are the champions of the world in chess right and (laughs) um i think in that piece i said you know we play checkers we kind of do our moves they're they're big moves you know with our hard power (laughs) economic sanctions and all this stuff but we're not so good at this long game of psychological warfare
0: so following that up a little bit the people who have been effective in kind of outing that and combating that, is that, as you said earlier, a case of just putting sunlight on it? Or is this, is there something that we can do to get ahead of that kind of thing as a society that does sometimes get targeted by these kinds of measures?
2: Yeah. I mean, it does, all of these require critically questioning the information that we're getting. And so, you know one of those is what are the assumptions that this issue is is based on? How is it being framed? Sometimes things are being framed in a way to get you to a particular outcome, and it doesn't have to be framed that way, right? Um, I will say that in our domestic politics, um, I see Republicans doing this all the time. They're very good at framing issues in a specific way and forcing the adversary to or their opponent. To engage on that issue in that or debate right. it on those terms. And, you know, the the answer is change the terms, question right. the assumptions, create a new paradigm and, you know, flip it so that the other person's on the defensive. But reflexive control, remember, is about reactivity, right? Like it's kind of getting people to react to something, not just changing how they see something, but also how they are participating and responding to it.
1: Well, and this is why uh, people should go subscribe to your Substack and (laughs) get the paid features because you, you have a very long article on this it sounds really complex and difficult and it's not that it's easy but there's probably no one better that can break it down better than you and and more capable and more qualified for that. So, yes, go go subscribe and learn more on her Substack. It is wonderful. In that vein, I did want to ask you, the sort of explainers you provide, it's it is long-form work. Um people have to put the time in, they have to want to learn and and want to kind of grow as a person. So what what has the response been to the Freedom Academy from subscribers? Have they been up to the challenge?
2: I think so. People get a little overwhelmed because, you know, they feel like, oh, my God, I'm behind. Um, I'm not caught up. I really do try to design it so that even if you have time to just read one of the articles, um, you know, you don't have to have done all the 13 lessons before that or whatever. Also, in those posts, I include an audio so and that's on the bottom um okay. so if you're driving or you know on your jog or whatever and you want to learn about reflexive control or hybrid warfare mm-hmm. or active measures generally you know you can do that and sort of multitask as well but i think the response has been it's been really positive i think people it's opened their eyes and i can definitely see that people who are engaged in it are understanding things that are happening in a in a different light you know the aperture yeah. of their understanding has i i feel has been open which is always rewarding to me as a teacher
1: I feel like there is that desire out there um, and people go looking for it, but there's so many different places to get your information. Now it's, it's hard to find even if you kind of think, you know what you're looking for, it's hard to find it because is it on TV? Is it in print? Is it on social media? So yeah, that's why I think it's so important to point people in, in your direction.
2: And when you find it, I just think people are overwhelmed, right? Like there's just so much information and our attention spans have gotten smaller and smaller. I'm guilty of this. I subscribe to like 10 substacks, And, you know, I'm like, (laughs) I have had to discipline myself. So when I'm waiting in a dentist's office, I'm not mindlessly scrolling through Twitter. I'm like, I'm going to read something substantive Mm -hmm. from someone who has expertise that I want to learn about. And I, I don't know how hopeful I am about us getting back to that type of habit. But I think it is a function of our you know, 24 seven news cycle, scrolling, news feeds, Twitter, social media atmosphere.
1: Yeah, you have to make a conscious decision to do it. Because otherwise, it, it is every, th- you know, three seconds here, three seconds, mm-hmm. there, five seconds there. So I did have a little longer question. And you'll have to bear with me. But I think it's, uh it's worth asking. So you're a former special agent in the counterintelligence division of the FBI. You have a law degree. You were a former dean of admissions at Yale Law School. You're currently an assistant dean and senior lecturer at the Yale Jackson School of Global Affairs. It is an amazingly impressive resume. Um, But my question is, did you ever expect with your background to spend so much of your time dissecting baseless conspiracy theories?
2: Definitely not. (laughs) I mean, you would ask me in law school if this is where I would end up or that I would be spending, you know, 10 hours going down a rabbit hole about Hunter Biden's laptop. So to explain it to people, no, I would not. And, (laughs) you know, it kind of gets to this whole idea of things that used to be so fringe and that have become mainstream. Right. I mean, if you had said. Can you imagine yourself becoming a teacher or an explainer, you know, somebody who's kind of doing this type of thing? I would have said maybe, but the substance of it, the reason that I'm doing like conspiracy theories and disinformation is because there's no gatekeepers anymore.
0: Right. Right.
2: For for better or worse. Uh, And that's a double edged sword. But it used to be that we all had three channels that we watched. You know, we got our news. There was no social media. People like Alex Jones would have just been. Ranting in some corner, you know, some radio show that, you know, might have had some listeners, but wouldn't have had the following that he has now.
0: Public access TV where he started.
2: And I think it really speaks to how much this nonsense has become mainstreamed. And I think that's the really dangerous part.
0: So speaking of nonsense that's become mainstream, as a former FBI agent, you you must have noticed that there has been an amazing spike in extremely violent and hateful rhetoric towards the fbi specifically on the part of a lot of the republican party and maga so why do you think they're doing this at this point
2: so i think that you can't disentangle that reaction from donald trump right right when you have a demagogue Um, someone who has authoritarian impulses, the first thing that has to go is the rule of law, because that's going to be a constraint on that person. Ideally, what you would have with somebody who is trying to do that is you have um, a critical mass of opposition who try to keep institutional guardrails in place and apply the rule of law. Because of our political polarization, people, I think, believe that their loyalty to Trump is more important than our institutions and the rule of law. And so they're on board with discrediting the FBI. I mean, who knew Like, who would have imagined? Let's talk about things we would have imagined 20 years ago (laughs) that the Republican Party, the party of law and order, the one that has, you know, that backs the blue, blue. right? Yeah. Um, would be the ones talking about defunding the FBI, um, that yeah. would be denigrating the FBI for trying to investigate Russian election interference. Um, I mean, it's just, it's really crazy.
0: You go back to the day after nine eleven, and the world feels like it's turned upside down. Sometimes if you look back that far and you're like, really, this is where we are. This is insane. Yeah, and the
2: flip side, like, would you ever, ever expected like people on the left to be no. the champions of Not the FBI and the CIA and whatever? I mean, it's just we're in bizarro world right now.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> we really are. Yeah, it's it's crazy because if you know you subscribe to the notion that it is a Cold War two point then the the fifth column really for the authoritarian states, the enemies of America, are on the right, and who could have possibly Predicted that uh, it's
2: yeah, and you know one of the things I mentioned in my Substack about why like one of the barriers to active measures operations during the Cold War was because the KGB could not make inroads into the political right, right, right for a number of reasons. I mean, there was this the conservative philosophy, law and order, communism was atheist. Um, So you also had this idea that the the religious prophylactic there and now, you know, they're really able to play both sides of the political spectrum, which greatly increases their ability to sow chaos. Um, They can't they don't have to be at the fringes anymore and not only both sides, but on it's asymmetric on one side, they really are in the core mainstream part of that political party.
0: That's an interesting point right there, that they've kind of taken over the center to some extent, their narrative has at least, where more on the left, it's still on the fringes, but it's definitely there. You can see it in certain alternative news outlets that are very good about putting out exactly the same things. Like You take a look recently... Tucker Carlson got fired a couple days ago from Fox News, and you start to see certain left-wing outlets, ostensibly left-wing, defending that. And it's kind of like, are you out of your mind? This is insane. This guy's a propagandist, and this is this is a good thing, but they're selling it the same way their right-wing outlets are selling it. And it's kind of never yeah. been more obvious in a lot of ways what's going on here.
2: Yeah, the asymmetry is really important to understand, and, and you just highlighted it. There's extremism on both sides but um it's called asymmetrical polarization um so you can read article you know scholarly articles about it that basically both parties have moved you know farther from the center but the right has moved much farther from the center than the left has in terms of media narratives the media ecosystems are also asymmetrical so whereas the center of gravity on left leaning media CNN, MSNBC, they're still tethered to mainstream media, which means that they still have traditional journalistic norms. They still police each other and themselves for being generally truthful, right, if biased. The right wing media ecosystem, it is the center of gravity is Fox News, which is completely untethered to like they're not overlapping their audiences with, say, the people who read the Wall Street Journal news section. Right. No, they're completely untethered from reality. There's no internal policing. And so they're just out in la la land. Um, And it makes it, you know, incredibly hard to we basically have two different realities, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it hard to achieve any type of consensus or democratic deliberation or real debate or anything.
1: Well, and then you have someone like Tucker who has purported left-wing guests on his show who are not really, you know, emblematic or a good representation of what the left really believes, but then the right thinks that that is – what the left believes and so then the the arguments and the fights are about things that are okay there are some people on the left that might believe this extreme thing or that extreme thing but there are millions of people in this country and one or two who have some crazy ideas not are not a representative sample so i i think i think losing tucker is a is a great loss for the fringes yes but we we don't seem to know why and i, I i'm sure you've been following this that we keep seeing different theories on this, and I, I don't expect you to know, none of us know, but do you think it's a combination of factors? Do you do you think that possibly the Dominion suit could have hurt Fox? Or is that at least changing their their plans going forward, perhaps?
2: It's hard to see how based on what the Dominion lawsuit itself revealed, right? Like this is a company that is so concerned about not losing their audience That they were willing to feed their audience what they wanted to hear, even knowing that it was false, because otherwise the audience was going to abandon them and not, by the way, go to, you know, CNN or PBS or anything like that, but to go to OANN and Newsmax. I have to imagine, especially in light of their settlement, that they need to keep that audience So, I mean, I don't know if they're just in a catch 22 now. Like, how do they do that without continuing to feed them these conspiracy theories that they believe, um, which clearly now is going to open them up to more liability? Um, So I think really the litmus test is going to be who do they replace Tucker with? I don't they replace him with like Jesse Waters or something like that. Like, no, they haven't. They're not changing. And I think it's something besides the Dominion lawsuit. Right. Yeah. If they really try to suddenly go moderate and they're willing to take that loss of mark of audience share to try to move closer to the center and maybe draw, you know, a more center right audience towards them, like to draw the people who read the the Wall Street Journal news section to watch Fox News, um, you know, maybe a portion of CNN's audience base or something like that. Then, you know, we'll we'll see that in who they start replacing it with. I am very skeptical. I don't right.
0: know about you. No. Yeah. Skeptical. Because for them to move to the center in any sort of moderating way, I think not only are they going to lose a whole ton of their core audience at this point, they're also going to have a really hard time bringing in anybody who has been paying attention over the last few years who just on the, especially on the more left side of things that just doesn't trust Fox period. The same as when CNN is trying to appeal to a more right-leaning crowd, seemingly without knowing that Fox and everybody else on that side of the fence has been bashing CNN really hard for the past almost 10 years now for being too liberal and too woke. And it's just there's a trust barrier and it's on both sides and I don't see it. And I
2: think that if that's what CNN is trying to do, then they fundamentally misunderstand the set. You know, they can probably draw people over from MSNBC. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like those audiences are overlapping like they don't overlap with the audience at Fox. those as you just said they're not going to come over to cnn i don't understand if that's the um if if that's the play i feel like it's going to be a losing play
1: right yeah the the people who who leave fox from from what I read on, on right wing social media and posts, the, the people who leave Fox mostly leave Fox for Rumble or Telegram or something more extreme. And they, they kind of put up with Fox because of Tucker, because Tucker was a, was a outlet for some of that extremist rhetoric. And it was a way to, to mainstream it. And so they, they put up with fox which they might call controlled opposition or something that they don't they don't support but yeah i just people in that space tend to go more extreme and there are plenty of more extreme alternatives out there and i i don't i don't really see a whole lot of the right taking their foot off the gas and if that's what fox was hoping for i don't i don't understand how they're going to accomplish that at all
2: It just happened so suddenly that I can't, I don't think it was a strategic decision.
0: He's not Megyn Kelly. You know, this is not something that they're going to be able to just plug somebody else into that slot and keep moving. They're Mm going to lose a lot of people who were, like Jay just said, only watching that network for Tucker to some reason. So I really, I don't know what they're going to do. I can't think of an obvious replacement for him. There's really nobody that jumps out that would have that same level of appeal
2: Dan well, Gino,
1: They just fired <laughs> him. Yeah. And Tucker Tucker <laughs> had to become Tucker. He wasn't this guy 10 years ago. Oh. Yeah, he he decided this is a character he's going to take on. And I don't know if that's because he radicalized himself or he's, he's bitter or what it is. But he made it conscious or at least he didn't stop himself from becoming this person. And I, I don't know who else would do that, would be willing to do that. It's, it's not like Sean Hannity can suddenly uh, turn himself into Tucker. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know where it goes from there. So you've written a lot about Donald Trump's uncanny ability to
0: hijack news coverage, influence narratives, and basically suck all the airtime out of the room. We're seeing a lot of the same mistakes of 2016 reappear as we gear up for 2024 So do you think the media is better prepared to deal with Trump this time, or have they refused to learn anything in the name of ratings?
2: I think they're a little better. You know, what someone like Trump does is exploit norms, and particularly norms about silence and what you can say or not say. You know, one of the mistakes that journalists had very early in his presidency is he's the president so anything he says is newsworthy and everything that you report you just report verbatim because to try to correct something looks like editorializing right which you don't do as a journalist well if someone is telling i mean i forgot what the average number of lies he was telling a day (laughs) is you know if you're just reporting those verbatim without any type of correction or without saying, for example, if you just say Trump says millions of illegal people voted and you don't say it as Trump falsely claims millions of illegal like that, there's a difference in how you frame it.
0: Right. Um, Yeah.
2: So, you know, I think they got a little bit better about that, about trying to like acknowledge that he was lying. I don't know if they ever got to a point where they actually called him a liar um, (laughs) because that's a hard thing to do for the president of the United States. So they've gotten a little bit better. I mean, Jay, what do you think? I know you look at these types of questions also, things like framing and perception.
1: I think realistically, the public backlash and criticism has forced some of them to do slightly better. I think in general... I think it was easy in 2016 and 2017 to not see Trump as the threat that some of us did. I think the media said, well, he's he's ridiculous, but he's just a performer. And it's not great, but what's the real harm in some cases? I think after January 6th, I do feel like more journalists and more people are aware of the threat. They They do look at the situation and say yeah democracy is in trouble and we can't go on like this forever and so i think they are better at you know the the headlines and the little blurbs and the tweets and the every little thing that i do think it's minor but it makes a difference i feel like you're right it it is a little better there are some people that are probably the same as they were and they just go about their day and their business but i think I think most people have tried. I think obviously everyone still wants to get ahead with their career. And if it's a, if it's a really kind of seductive story, you might be drawn into it or, or report it or frame it in a way that's favorable to Trump for access or influence or whatever. But I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as bad because people see. They, we lived through four years of it and, and you had to learn something through that. And you also, you, you talk about, um, you know, the, the beginning of his presidency and taking him literally and, and putting out all of his, uh, statements and not, not editorializing with them. But it's, it's also, you juxtapose that with the idea that at some point during his presidency, his I don't remember who said it, but they said basically ignore his tweets. His tweets are not policy. His tweets are not Trump may tweet about the war or sending troops in or or removing troops. And it's not. No, that's not official. No, don't. No, don't take that literally. No, the State Department shouldn't act on that. So we kind of had (laughs) to adjust to the circumstances. It was it was forced on us, really.
2: Yeah, I the other place where I thought journalists did a pretty good job was in the lead up to the 2020 election of setting expectations. It was really important to say, hey, it's going to take a while to count these votes and we may not have a winner, you know, to to create a counter narrative. This is kind of like what you need to do, because as he was saying, like and he was basically telegraphing that he was going to claim victory. And so, you know, I don't know if they were consciously doing that, but the fact that they were setting expectations in such a way that at least for the mainstream people who understood how the election was going to work, the big light, you know, didn't gain the kind of traction that it did. I think where they still have work to do, at least some networks is in discussing the issues. As I mentioned before, they play on the turf in which the, issue is presented they need to both sides it so they got to bring some poop pot on and i get it if it's a legitimate debate right a policy debate then fine but like we don't need someone on to talk about hunter biden's laptop you know what i mean or or just <laughs> yeah. something wacky that you know I'm, I'm trying to remember what they were before um well,
1: i'm trying i'm thinking of, of interviews with Kaylee McEnany or or Stephen Miller, where it's or just- Jenna Ellis back yes. in the day
2: where I was put yes. on with her to debate her. And it's like, I can't debate her. I mean, like, right. I literally would say, OK, well, back here on Earth, here are the facts. Like, you know, because I just <laughs> I didn't even understand, like, what she was talking about mm-hmm. because she's right. living in an alternative reality. And I think that is not helpful.
0: Right. And she's not really trying to debate you. She's looking for clips for Newsmax or looking for clips for A.N. She could yeah. care less about what you say. At that point, she's trying to make her points. And it's interesting that you brought up the laptop, because I think that's actually one of the things that the media did really well in 2020 compared to 2016, Mm -hmm. where the big October surprise type story comes up right towards the end of the election. And the media did a very good job of looking at the story, looking at who was pushing it and saying, nah, nah, there's just nothing. This is weird. We're not we're not going there. So. You wrote a great piece about this. And do you think that we're ever going to hear the end of this as far as the laptop goes? Do you think we're going to keep hearing? <laughs> I,
2: I agree with you. What what? And this, was, this is about framing, right? Like right. the problem with 2016 was all these emails were released and there was no acknowledgement in the framing of it that these were hacked emails by Russia, <laughs> which right. was sort of relevant to – they were true. The emails were actually real. It's not the authenticity of the emails. It's the actor behind the release and the purpose in releasing them. And that should have been also a part of the story. And that gives you it helps you to critically evaluate how much weight you want to give to the substance. And I think in 2020, as you said, the question was, well, where are these coming from and for what purpose? And this has frustrated Republicans greatly, right, because Mm -hmm. it didn't work. The op didn't work the way they wanted because the the framing is on the provenance of the emails, not the substance. And by the way, I don't think the substance actually adds up to much, but whatever. That's what they want the story (laughs) to be. I don't know that we'll hear the end of it, mainly because now there's been a, a weaponization of the government to try to launder the narratives through you know, these hearings and and all of this stuff. I still don't think, though, that it's gotten the kind of traction that Hillary's emails did. So, you know, we'll have to see. But I do I do see people popping into my Twitter feed and they're like, what about the 51 intelligence officials who lied and said that this was a information up, which is something that Trump said the other day. So, like, Mm -hmm. there's an echo chamber still, Uh but I don't know that the media is biting to the same degree, but it's not going to go away for sure.
1: Yeah, the the right wing kind of did it to themselves, though, because uh, we were right in the thick of the Hunter Biden laptop op, and they had at least three different groups kind of competing with different hunter biden material it was just so confusing it was clear what they were trying to do but i think they even confused themselves and and they're just so convinced that something is there that's really concerning and we really have to look into he
2: mentions the big guy yeah Mm -hmm. the
1: big guy yeah now we've got a whole conservative movie about it that um i haven't watched yet and and don't really want meanwhile
2: back at the ranch trump literally had hundreds of top secret classified documents and Mm -hmm. they're like he's innocent
1: yeah and jared kushner's two billion dollar deal with the saudi government is just kind of glossed over and yeah yeah we can't we can't talk about that but we've we've also again uh, i don't know if you saw but uh I noticed that we've gotten even more Twitter files in the last couple of days with. New people that I have not, uh, I've not (laughs) heard of. I don't know who they are, but I did. I had to kind of check it first to see, is this, is this a real thing or is this somebody pretending to do the Twitter files? But Matt Taibbi, who had uh, done the original version is now back on Twitter and he was amplifying it. So it does look like it's, it's from above, uh, and, and it's all part of the same group, but they, They've, of course, uh, focused a lot on the Hunter Biden laptop. And that was kind of for them. That was the impetus for going into all of the Twitter files. But they've got a lot of grievances. It's one of many grievances, but <laughs> I thought your piece on this on the Twitter files. I think it was December was, was great. I love that you, you focused on the algorithms where, where the right says, Oh, free speech is under attack. You said, well, a lot of what's coming out in the Twitter files is it, one, it was just people at Twitter trying their best to, to be as fair and balanced and, and helpful. And they were imperfect people who maybe made choices at the spur of the moment. Yeah. But it happens and that's life. But yeah, the, the focus on the algorithm is great. I didn't know if you wanted to, to talk about that and explain how the algorithms kind of manipulate the information that we get.
2: Yeah. And there's not enough focus on this because I think we get so caught up in content, right? So as I mentioned, I think I think the whole content moderation, censorship stuff is just a red herring for what is the problem. I think the bigger issue is transparency because that gets to the actor and purpose that I mentioned earlier, like it's like it's more important to have information out there, but know who is precisely putting it out there and, you know, to understand what they might be hoping to achieve by it. And then, as you mentioned, the algorithm, which artificially inflates certain information over others. In other words, we have this idea of a marketplace of ideas, but we have a very rigged marketplace right now. I mean, yeah. if this was a securities market, it would be a hot mess, mm-hmm. right? Because you would never know what the true value of a company is. It's like if there was some other actor, like kind of making a company look more profitable than it is. I mean, we wouldn't stand for that in the financial space because people would lose a lot of money, right? right. If you were making decisions based on what stock to buy, based on imp- like bad valuation, but we have bad valuation of information in the marketplace of ideas because algorithms boost certain things and not others and now Elon Musk has made this even worse by allowing anyone and you know their mom to buy a checkmark and boost their content as well and we know to circle this back to Russia that you know they have bought you know checkmarks so that they can promote um and get their narratives about Ukraine and other things um boosted in in this space. So one way to change things without actually affecting content or sent or having to censor anything is to, you know, add things like more friction. Um, or you slow down the amplification of things, or you can value things differently. Like you can decide that there are certain values that you want to maximize. In the algorithm facebook did this in the lead up to the 2020 election they actually changed their algorithm to prioritize more reliable news so you know these conspiracy theories actually didn't get as much circulation the question is you know how do you get these companies to do that consistently because it's actually not profitable for them to do that
0: no right It's almost like we saw something similar in the lead up to the 2022 midterms where we were getting bombarded with the polls say, the polls say, the polls say. It seemed like Simon Rosenberg and his group sort of dived into that. And they were like, wait a second, this poll that says this is two high school kids from Virginia that Mm -hmm. called 500 people sort of out of the phone book. Oh, this was
2: the Red Massacre. Right, right, right.
0: And we had all been kind of conditioned to expect a Red Massacre, like you said, but it didn't really come down that way. And part of the reason we got conditioned to that was because I think of what you said about we just didn't really value the information correctly. We treated all of these polls like they were equal. Like, you know, these two kids' patriot polling strategies out of Virginia were equal to, you know, Gallup or somebody. And when you yeah. give that equal amounts of weight, you're going to come up with some very misleading results. So hopefully that's another thing that we can kind of learn to stay away from going forward, because yeah, information waiting, that's fascinating. It's a good takeaway. Yeah,
2: it, and I think in addition to the way, like there's, there's two things going on there. One kind of gets back to the reflexive control thing, right? Like there's this this assumption that was like pushed out there. And by the way, that shapes behavior. Mm-hmm. Because if you believe that there's going to be a red massacre, guess what? You're not going to go out and vote, maybe. Maybe you're like, I'm not going to sit and wait like, you know, 10 uh-huh. hours in line if this is just a beta accompli. So that's a, you know, a dangerous thing where the prediction or assumption then shapes the thing to make it come true, really. Right and in terms of the weighting that gets to this idea i talked about before about there's no gatekeepers basically because there's no gatekeepers there's also a flattening of authority everybody has the same weight i mean we saw this in covid like some yahoo who knows nothing about science is out there promote you know saying vaccines don't work or hydrochloroquine is the the way to go we're not able to evaluate relative sources of authority in the same way.
1: Yeah, there are there are now the ADL covered this recently, but there are kind of random anti-vax accounts on Substack that are making I think a minimum of $40,000 a month mm-hmm. on subscriptions and they it's it's entirely focused on anti-vax content. And who is this person? What are their qualifications? Well, usually it's it's none. It's nothing. They read something somewhere. They came up with something on their own. But that is a way to make a living. And as long as that's a way to make a living, there's going to be people who are going to go out and do it.
2: Yeah. The fact that you can monetize disinformation is really a, a huge issue that has not been unpacked enough.
1: Yeah.
0: So... We're going to go ahead and ask a really tough question, considering some of the stuff we've we've talked about thus far going
1: forward. Um, Yeah, here's our here's our optimism uh, segment. It's it's going to be short, but let's let's give it a shot. um,
0: So what do you see that gives you hope and optimism for the future of the country? You get up every day and you go into this and, you know, fight them as hard as you can. You've been doing this for a number of years now. What makes you get up and do that? Every day. What do you see Hmm. that makes you think it's worth it?
2: Yeah, I was hoping we were going to run out of time before you asked me. (laughs) 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 Okay, I'll say there's a few things. Number one, there's more of us than there are of them. And when I say us to them, I'm not talking about Democrat or Republican. I'm talking about people who care about democracy whatever their political affiliation, and who believe in the values and principles of democracy and the people who don't. And I truly believe that that's a probably a 70-30 split at most, um, ideally maybe 75-25 or even less. The problem is, you know, is I think that we just have a challenge of trying to collectively organize and make sure that we're all sort of acting together. Because One of the values of democracy is, you know, diversity and plurality of opinion. So it's a messy tent and it's really hard to have the same unity of purpose that the kind of authoritarian camp does, which are all in like lockstep. But it does give me hope that just numbers wise. Right. And this is why you see all these anti-democratic measures um, being implemented across the country, because they know. Right. The the autocrats know That they don't have the numbers. They have to rig the system to win. And I think that ultimately that's going to backfire. The other thing that gives me hope is I really think the younger generation has Mm -hmm. had enough. I really do. I mean, we have a whole cohort of voters who have come of age during the Trump years who are watching all this nonsense in like Tennessee and Montana. And they are just they're like, F this. And yeah. they're now voting age.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they're voting two to one in favor of Democrats, uh, which which is good. Yeah. And they, they just they don't buy it. You're right. They don't. They, they see right through it. And I think it had to get to this ridiculous point. But that's a good thing. That is a hopeful thing.
2: So I think that there will be a pendulum swing in that way. And then finally, I did have a third thing in my mind.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I must I, I got you off track. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's okay. Oh, I think that accountability is important and I think I I have been frustrated, don't get me wrong, I'm not naive and I, you know, don't have my blinders on, but I do believe that accountability especially in terms of the justice system is coming and that it matters, right? I You know, I know we're still waiting for Trump to be held accountable for January 6th, but hundreds of people, hundreds of defendants have been. And by the way, when he tried to get his supporters out for him in New York, telling them to rise up and, you know, come resist or protest or whatever, it was like crickets. Mm hmm. It matters. Yeah. People are like, "Whoa, well, no, people are going to jail, you know, after January 6th. Like there, this right. actually has consequences. So I and I do believe it's coming. I and mean, we've seen the um, indictment in Manhattan. There's going to be one in Fulton County, Georgia. And then I do believe that there are going to be charges coming from the Department of Justice. And by the way, I think just going back to sucking the air out of the room, I think if there's One thing that Americans love more than Trump's crazy, it's true crime. And so, you know, his (laughs) his like chart, like every legal drama of his is going to take over. And I think it's it may be the one thing that's going to make him it hard for him to cut through that noise.
1: Makes sense. Indeed. Yeah.
0: Asha. Thank you very much for coming on with us today. It was a blast, very enlightening to talk to you about some of this stuff. Anything you want to talk about you've got coming up project wise?
2: No, I'm like I'm just really trying to stay on top of all of the different legal things, not just with Trump, you know, this lawsuit that Disney has filed against DeSantis. This is, you know, trying to keep track of of all this. I think the courts are on the front lines and I just want to be able to explain it to people.
1: Well, uh, go check out her Substack stack and uh, go check out her podcast with Renato Mariotti. It's it's complicated. hmm. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. It is, That's a great uh, I've gotten to listen to one. I'm going to listen to more. I, uh, I love what you're doing and we really appreciate you coming on.
2: Thanks so much.
1: Thanks again, bye. Asha. Take care. Take care. Bye bye.
2: Bye, guys.
1: Thanks for
0: listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to didnothingwrongpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Griza, B-J-J, G-R-Z-A, B-J-J, as well as DNWpod. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.